Good morning. Our text this morning is going to be uh, John 20, 1 through 23. Uh, I actually preached this sermon on my last Sunday at Decatur Presbyterian. I preached this text. That was not planned. It was just the next text in our series. I told a few people that I was excited that I got to end on the resurrection, and I think most of them thought I was excited because it's hard to whiff on a sermon about the resurrection, uh, which I suppose is true. Mostly I was excited because I love talking about the resurrection of Jesus. Um, I, I love talking about it uh, for a lot of reasons, but the main reason is because this is the event on which everything else hangs. If Jesus walked away from his tomb, then all the rest of, all the rest of Christianity's claims are true as well. All of our present and future hope hangs on this. If this isn't true, none of the other stuff matters. If Christ isn't raised, then we might as well sleep in on Sundays and go join a social club instead. It is Christ's resurrection that brings all of God's promises into full focus, that assures us that they have come to pass, are coming to pass, and will come to pass. In other words, I got to leave them with the clearest picture of their only hope that I possibly could. And I get to greet you with the same thing. Do you look for peace? You're going to find it in our passage this morning. Do you look for forgiveness for your sins? You're going to find it in our passage this morning. Do you look for some kind of promise that God has not changed, that he hasn't given up on doing what he said he would do? You will find it in our passage this morning. Do you see pain, death, and desperation in the world and look for some glimmer of hope that things won't always be this way? You will find that in our passage this morning. And if you aren't looking for those things, I think that John here will present them as so real, so necessary, and so available to us in the person and work of Jesus that you will want them by the time we're done. I think sometimes we don't look for those things because they seem so unattainable it would be almost foolish for us to, to try to, to reach for them. Or we don't look for peace, for forgiveness of sins, for assurance of God's commitment not to abandon his people. We don't look for hope for the future because we just don't see them as accessible uh, for the same reason. I don't look for a day when I'll own a private island. There's no conceivable world in which I will ever own a private island. And I think we treat these things the same way. But we're going to see that very much unlike my hypothetical private island, Christ has made all of these promises available to you now. If you would, please stand for the reading of God's Word. This is John 20, 1 through 23. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. 
For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I'll take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and to your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold, the for- if you, if you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Please pray with me. Almighty God, as we, as we open your word, uh, as, as we examine it, we ask that your Holy Spirit would give us eyes to see, and ears to hear, and we might lay hold of the great promises you've made to us. Let us see in the resurrection of Jesus Christ that your kindness toward us surpasses even our wildest dreams and cause that kindness to lead us to repentance. Father in heaven, let this word you've given us take root in our hearts that it might bear fruit today, tomorrow, and for years to come. We ask all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. Just a little bit of context before we jump in. There are three things that are worth keeping in mind as we look at our passage today. Um, If you've ever studied John, probably even if you haven't, uh, you'll know that we're closing in on the end of the book. Uh, We've seen the earthly ministry of Jesus. We've witnessed his arrest and trial. We've seen his crucifixion. And now we've reached chapter 20 which is dedicated entirely to the resurrection. John is very purposefully doing a lot here in this chapter. It's where many of his themes are brought to a conclusion. In fact, John includes his purpose statement at the end of this chapter. If, if you look at the end of chapter 20, he says that, that uh, he's written this book uh, that people might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing they might have life. Chapter 21, as beautiful and important as it is, acts as something of an epilogue. A sort of, okay, so now what, right? In chapters 1 through 12, we saw the life and ministry of Jesus. 13 through 20 are the farewell discourse, uh, the crucifixion, the resurrection. And 21 is the epilogue. It, it wraps everything up and says, okay, well, so what do we do now going forward, now that we know all this? So you can expect to see John tying a lot of his thematic threads together in this chapter. This is in many ways what he's been building toward, and I think that's the first thing we need to keep in mind. Second... Uh, is that you, you might know um, <clears throat> John is, is unique among the Gospels. Um, 
Matthew, Mark, and Luke have a lot of overlap in a lot of places. John sort of sort of stands out separately, right? But this is one of the few places where John shares in that overlap with the other Gospels. That's important for us to, to, to note because our tendency when we see strong similarities between the Gospel accounts is sometimes to, to move through them pretty quickly. We're familiar, right? So we just move along. We see all that's the same, and we move to the next thing. But what we should do is ask why each writer includes details that the others don't. Why in our passage today does John bring out things that the other writers do not? What is he calling our attention to with the particular details he includes? I want us to bear in mind that our focus is going to be on John's particular details. What is he from his perspective, as a writer, as a disciple of Jesus, trying to tell us about the resurrection and what it accomplished. And finally, I want us to remember that John, just as a rule, has not been shy about using the Old Testament in both literary and in theological ways. I'll explain what that means. Uh, that is to say that from a literary standpoint, just as literature, he does things like, like use callbacks to the Old Testament that readers would recognize. The first three words of the book of John are, in the beginning. That's not an accident. He's calling readers' attention to the fact that he's placing everything he's going to write in the story of God's creation. This is God's work in the world. And he's trying to pull you back to Genesis in your mind so that you realize that as he talks in chapter 1 about God the Son, about Jesus, that you, you know, okay, he's been around since creation. So he uses these literary callbacks. Theologically, he does things like explain that the temple was always pointing toward the personal work of Jesus, who is himself where humanity finally and fully meets God. John sort of interjects in his gospel sometimes. He'll say, well, Jesus said this, and by that he meant, and then he gives you the theological explanation, and a lot of times it's tied to the Old Testament. John's not shy about doing that. Understanding that particular style, his willingness to point us clearly toward other parts of Scripture. That's going to help us make sense of some of what he's saying. Ultimately this morning, I want us to focus on three things that John tells us the resurrection accomplished. John will show us in the resurrection of Jesus, one, Scripture fulfilled, two, Christ's sacrifice accepted, and three, our sins forgiven. Those are our three headings or points this morning. Scripture fulfilled, Christ's sacrifice accepted, our sins forgiven. So let's begin with the first, Scripture fulfilled in verses 1 through 10. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. She ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together. But the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in. And he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. 
We see Mary Magdalene coming to the tomb first, so early that it's still dark outside, and she sees the stone has been moved. She pretty fairly assumes that Jesus' body has been taken, and there are a few reasons this would be an entirely understandable thing for her to think. Jesus had been executed as a criminal, and those who'd been crucified typically weren't given a full burial. The only reason he was was because he was in a borrowed tomb, which is the second reason this would be perfectly understandable. Uh, if Pilate had simply gone back on his word to Joseph of Arimathea, who he said, you know, Joseph of Arimathea goes to him and says, hey, can I take the body? I'll put him in my tomb. If Pilate had simply gone back on his word to appease any still angry citizens, he could have had the body confiscated and thrown in a grave somewhere to appease those people. That, was, that wouldn't have been a stretch. As a useful side note, uh, every now and then, this is kind of rare, but every now and then, you'll find people who suggest that Rome simply stole the body uh, of Jesus so that they could have some unifying force in their empire or something. Aside from the fact that that ignores like the first 300 years of Christian history and Rome trying to destroy Christianity, um, if the Roman officials had carted the body away, <clears throat> then Christianity could have been put down in the first century by any one of those officials who didn't like Christianity just retrieving it. Um, the, a lot of Roman officials wanted Christianity put down, after all, and if they had possession of Jesus' body or knew where it was, then they just would have gotten it and put it on display. They didn't really have any qualms about that sort of thing. <clears throat> but as Mary and the disciples will soon learn, Rome has not taken Jesus' body out of his tomb Jesus has taken Jesus' body out of his tomb. Peter and John run to the tomb to try to figure out what happened. And upon arriving, they see that the linen cloths, which, been, uh, which Jesus had been wrapped in, were left uh, where he'd been lying. Uh, in fact, the face cloth was actually folded up and set down. Thieves who are trying to rob a guarded tomb don't normally take the time to unwrap the body and fold the face cloth. Uh, and that's kind of the first thing that tips them off, that something has happened that maybe they should have been expecting all along. They go into the tomb, they see the scene, and John tells us that they believe. Because up until that point, they had not understood that Scripture was always pointing them to the fact that the Christ was going to be resurrected. That's fascinating. For a few reasons. One is that John is actually sort of condemning himself. He's saying something negative about himself here. He's admitting before everyone who will ever read this account that he had not begun to understand Scripture or Jesus' own words until this moment, which is a humbling admission for someone who spent three years listening to Jesus teach. <clears throat> the second reason this is interesting is that they're clearly only beginning to understand. They're just beginning to understand. They don't fully get all the implications of this yet. We'll actually see that in further interactions. But John says their belief was legitimate all the same. Here's a freebie for you. Not, every, not having everything figured out does not mean you can't still trust Jesus. In fact, I would encourage you to trust Jesus anyway. But the third thing that's fascinating here <clears throat> is really the main thing I want us to take away from this section. John tells us that Scripture 
had always pointed to this event. That's what he says. Which means that God, through all the chaos, all the questions, all the idolatry that happens in the Old Testament, was always set on redeeming his people through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. He was so set on it that he'd been calling his shot for millennia. You can look at Psalm 16. It gets used in Pentecost. Actually, Peter and Paul both use it. In Acts 13, Paul uses it as an Old Testament proof that the Messiah would die and be raised because God wouldn't abandon his soul to death and let his Holy One see corruption. Peter makes the same point in Acts 2. David, though praying for God's provision and praising him for the ways he provided in the past, was also acting in a prophetic manner when he wrote that psalm. That's not the only place we're told the Messiah would suffer but come out on the other side as the victor over death. Think of Psalm 2, that the kings of the world, the kings of the world want to burst the bonds of God and his king, his Messiah, apart. But they can't. You can think of the very famous Isaiah 53, where we're told he'll be crushed, but also that his soul will be satisfied. Or Psalm 22, which Jesus quoted on the cross, that begins with this cry of desperation to God, but ends with the assurance that deliverance will come and that the victory will be shared with coming generations. You can go all the way back to Genesis 3, where God promises Adam and Eve that the seed of the woman and the serpent, Satan himself, would be enemies. That the serpent would strike his heel, that he would get a bite in. But the seed of the woman would crush the serpent's head. Since Genesis... God has been telling his people that the Messiah would suffer greatly, even to death, but would come out on the other side of it with a victory. Listen to me. Since eternity passed, eternity passed, this is what God has purposed. For all of eternity, God the Son intended to take on our humanity so he could live, die, and be raised for our salvation. God was telling people that from the very beginning. Doubting believer, how do you know God won't change his mind about saving you? Because he's been planning on it for all of eternity. And Christ's death and resurrection is proof that he isn't backing out. He is doing what he said he would do. It's a very famous quote you probably heard before. I might have used it the last time I preached. I don't know. From Gerhardus Voss, a 20th century theologian, Dutch Reformed theologian, the greatest evidence God will never cease to love us lies in the fact that he never began. His love for you, believer, had no beginning. He has loved you for eternity. Set his affection on you for eternity. And the resurrection of Christ is proof that he is going to redeem you to himself. That He's going to keep you. He's going to finish what he started. The resurrection is scriptural fulfilled. I could stick on this all day, but we have to keep moving. <clears throat> Look with me at verses 11 through 18 as we consider that the resurrection is Christ's sacrifice accepted. 
But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They've taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they've laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you've laid him, and I will carry him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them that I am ascending to my Father and to your Father, to my God and to your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. I actually preached a sermon entirely on this section in 2022, uh, and I'm more or less going to give you a condensed one-point version of that sermon, uh, so you kind of get a two-for-one deal this morning. I want you to pay attention to the setting here. They're in a garden just outside the tomb on the first day. That's worth noting. Uh, that's why Christians worship on the first day of the week. Jesus was resurrected on the first day of the week. He met with the disciples on the first day of the week. That's why this is the Lord's Day. Mary walks into the tomb to discover two angels sitting on either side of the place where the body had been lying. (coughs) Now this looks suspiciously, in case you haven't noticed, like the Ark of the Covenant. You remember our Leviticus reading? The Ark of the Covenant had two angels perched on top of it. This looks like the mercy seat where blood was sprinkled every year on the Day of Atonement. Two angels on either side of the bench where Jesus had been lying, with blood-stained rags in between them. Here, it's important they're in a garden because the entire temple is absolutely covered in garden imagery. Why would John remind us they're in a garden? Why would John tell us exactly what the position of the angels are? Why is he giving us these details? Because he's painting a picture. And the temple was covered in garden imagery to remind Israel of Eden. And those angels on the Ark of the Covenant were there to remind Israel of the angels set outside of the garden who were tasked with preventing Adam and Eve from re-entering. This scene looks like the most holy place of the temple, which itself was designed to evoke thoughts of Eden. In other words, this looks both like the place where we first sinned against God and where Israel made sacrifices to atone for their sin. The problem, however, with Israel's sacrifices was, as as Hebrews points out, the blood of bulls and goats can't take away sin. Every year the high priest would enter the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement. He would sprinkle blood on the mercy seat, certainly with some degree of fear, because he's meeting God in between the angels of Eden. No one in Israel could be sure the sacrifice was accepted until the high priest walked back out alive. No one could be sure they were okay with God until the high priest returned to them from the place where only he could enter. you hearing it yet? Mary walks in on a scene that is startlingly reminiscent of the most sacred part of the temple, the Holy of Holies, a place she could not have gone because God had restricted entry. And which itself was a place that was meant to image Eden, a place she also definitely couldn't couldn't have gone because God even more tightly restricted entry. But the angels don't kick her out. 
They just ask her a question. They offer her assistance. Something has irrevocably changed. She walks out and finds Jesus, whom she assumes is a gardener, and given the fact that part of this whole thing is that he's taking us back to Eden, in a sense, she's right. She just doesn't know how. She, just doesn't, she doesn't recognize him at first. And then in a deeply tender moment, uh, it isn't until he says her name that she realizes who he is. And what he says next is telling. He tells her not to hold on to him. The ascension is still to come. There's more work to do. But then he tells her, he says, go to my brothers, speaking of the disciples. And then tells her <clears throat> to let them know that he's going to his father and their father and your father, Mary, to my God and their God and your God, Mary. I go to my father and to your father, to my God and to your God. The blood of bulls and goats could never take away sin, could never fully reconcile us to God, but Christ's blood could. And his resurrection is proof that his priestly prayer was heard, that he could look Mary in the face and say, I'm going to your father. When Jesus walked out of that tomb, he accomplished what no high priest ever could for any who will turn to him in repentance and faith, full reconciliation to God. In Christ, he can be your God. In Christ, he can be your Father. And this gift is readily available to you right this moment because the resurrection was proof that Christ's sacrifice was accepted. Again, I could stay here all day, but we still have one more thing to consider. Look with me in verses 19 through 23. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they're forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. We see the rest of the disciples still in hiding because they, they very understandably are afraid that the same religious leaders who saw to Jesus' death are going to want them dead too. That's a, that's a reasonable thing for them to think. But they're about to have an encounter that will rob death of its sting. These same men who are hiding right now will all boldly go to their deaths, with the exception of John. And that's not because people didn't want to kill him. It's just because they got him exiled first. Jesus shows up in the very room where they are, shows them his scars... And at that point, they're convinced they're truly seeing the resurrected Christ. He then commissions them, offering a blessing. Peace be with you. And telling them that he's sending them as he's been sent. In other words, the mission I've begun is the mission you're picking up. And that mission of redemption, we talked about some in Sunday school, that we, that we just talked about a minute ago, that God for all of eternity, all of eternity has intended to save a people. That's what he sends his, his disciples into. You're going to continue what I've started. You're going to take this message. And after he does this, he does something we might consider strange. He breathes on them after telling them they'll receive the Holy Spirit. But it isn't strange when we remember that in Genesis, God gives life to Adam by doing what? By breathing the breath of life into him. Jesus is telling them that a new life, a new birth is coming, that a new creation has begun. 
And for them, the promise of the Holy Spirit also empowers them to do the work that they in particular are called to as apostles. <clears throat> These apostles, commissioned by the resurrected Christ, will be responsible for overseeing the early church, teaching and guarding doctrine, and most uniquely, actually writing scripture. They hold a position no one else will ever hold. That's what's going on here, I think. Part of what's going on here, when Jesus tells them they forgive the sins of any, they're forgiven. If they would hold, withhold it, it's withheld. There are a number of commentators who think this is just about preaching the gospel. I certainly believe that's part of it. Um, but we don't tell anybody else that in the proclamation of the gospel, if you forgive sins, they're forgiven. If you withhold it, it's withheld. Uh, we don't use that same language. So I don't think it's just that. Obviously, he's also not telling them they can just, like, arbitrarily forgive sins, right? So what's he doing? I think he's telling them they have the responsibility for making clear his parameters for forgiveness. He's about to spend the rest of his time here before his ascension basically training them to go out, explaining the scriptures, telling them what the, what the good news of what he accomplished is, how it applies to everything, and it's their responsibility to then take that to the world. They, they don't set the parameters, so to speak, but they explain to other people what the parameters are. Right? What they say about who Jesus was and what he said, that, that goes. That includes about forgiveness. Our forgiveness was secured by the death and resurrection of Jesus, which is why he says this to the apostles only after his resurrection. But what we need to believe in order to be forgiven is passed on to us by them. Even the book we're reading now was written by one of the apostles, present when Jesus says this very thing. In fact, this idea of, of, of apostolic origin to Scripture was so important in the early church that when they were first determining the books of the New Testament, apostolic origins, right, that it was either directly written by an apostle or written by someone who, who was like interviewing an apostle, right? Mark is interviewing Peter, um, sort of working with Peter's story. It had to have a clear and direct connection to their testimony. That was like one of the main criteria. It was such a high, it was so high on the list, it was almost like the criteria that it came from the apostles. But our point here is not about the canon of the New Testament. Our real point here is that the resurrection proves our sin is forgiven. Jesus can't tell the apostles to go out and proclaim forgiveness unless forgiveness is actually possible. This means the check cleared. Jesus really did pay for our sin. His resurrection proves it. It proves it. Attached to our last point, it means that God has accepted the work of Jesus on our behalf. And how are we to lay hold of that forgiveness? Well, the, or the, the testimony of the apostles found in the New Testament, it tells us that we turn from our sin and we trust in Jesus Christ alone for that forgiveness. We receive it by the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ. We trust Christ as he's presented in the gospel. Not a version of him we like better. Not everything but the stuff that makes us uncomfortable. The real Jesus we accept him as he is. He is not an idea that you can pick and choose from. He is a person. You take him or you leave him. We accept Christ as he is and receive forgiveness. Turn to him in faith 
and the forgiveness of sins belongs to you. That is the testimony of the apostles. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The resurrection of Jesus assures us of the forgiveness of our sins. So what do we do with this? Are you already trusting Christ this morning? Then rejoice. Resurrection means all the promises of God are yours. Full atonement, reconciliation to God, even your own resurrection have been purchased by Jesus. You can trust God to do what he has promised. You can rest in the hope that the resurrection gives. But if you are not in Christ, then turn to him. Your sin can be forgiven because Christ's sacrifice has been accepted. And you can be sure that God will keep his promise to forgive you that he will keep his promise to reconcile you to himself in Christ because it is exactly what he has purposed to do for all of eternity. Trust Christ and you can believe that his intercession on our behalf, on your behalf, was heard by God. Please pray with me. Gracious God, we ask that you would take the truths we've considered this morning plant them deep in our hearts. For those among us who have placed our faith in Jesus, let us be compelled to love him more truly because he has loved us first. Teach us to trust you more fully and without reservation, confident that you will keep all the promises you've made and that we can see so clearly in the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. For those among us who don't yet know Jesus, I ask that you would, even now, in this prayer, turn their hearts toward you, draw them to repentance and faith, that they might claim the great gifts we've been given by Christ that we've seen in your word today. We ask these things in the name of our merciful Savior, Jesus. Amen.